Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. My name is Eddie Eifler and I will be your guide through this week's adventures in Denver Poetry Slam. First of all, if you want to know what happened, if you want to know how it happened and who was involved, you're in the right place. If you want to get to know the people behind the poetry, you have found the right podcast for Denver Poetry Slam. This upcoming Sunday... The 30th of July is the Mercury Cafe Team Send-Off Show, and we are rapidly approaching the National Poetry Slam in Denver, Colorado. It's going to be amazing! Thank you to Hockey and Furious, our interview for last week. This week's interview is with Kate Mackay. Kate was one of the founding members of Poetry Slam in Denver, along with Ted Vaca and Ian Doherty. She represented Denver at the National Poetry Slam from 2000 to 2002. She got to read as a sorbet poet for the individual competition at the National Poetry Slam in 2002. And when I caught up to her, she was at a conference in Las Vegas for her now very professional type job, which I will let her explain. So here we go. Without any further ado, this week's interview with Kate Mackay. Well, here, let's let's go back and start from the beginning. Okay. Um, what got you interested in poetry at all and how did that lead to slam poetry in those early days in denver well um i wouldn't geez it's so weird to call them early days in denver but i guess it would be early slam days in denver um i was coming from a profoundly uh repressive christian background and i started hanging out at the mercury cafe um on open mic nights um not the open poetry mic but just open mic there were uh, some guys that were like up there doing, you know, singing guitar songs and stuff like that. And my friends and I from Colorado Christian University, we thought it was so great and wow. subversive to come out to the Mercury Cafe downtown and <laughs> sing crazy songs about Ronald Reagan. Um, <laughs> and that, that's, you know, it's, it's like, like a million other kids in that, you know... Um, I just had books and books full of ramblings about how shitty life was and how unhappy, you know, and how full of bullshit everybody was. And, you know, just your basic run-of-the-mill teenage angst stuff. And I, I don't remember how, but I ended up at the Friday night um, open mic poetry reading. And it would start at 10 p.m. in the jungle room at the Mercury Cafe. As it still does. As, yes. <laughs> and, um... I I started reading poems there after there was a place called I think it was the Gypsy Moon on Colfax, mm-hmm. and it was like uh, Colfax and Lafayette, and it shut down and everybody migrated to the Mercury Cafe instead, and I started reading poems there and 
there's, um, I mean, there's the, the old guard, I would say. Uh, Andy O'Leary and Stan Ostrovsky and Joanne Cusick and um, Ian and myself and Henry Alarm Clock and Ted Baca and, oh, uh, God, a couple other people. Uh, Lenny Trinilla and his daughter, Jess. Yeah. Uh, um, was Tony Sabella back in those days as well? Uh, Tony Sabella actually didn't didn't come back to Denver until a couple of years in. Huh. Um, but Ed Ward was hosting. And I kind of, I mean, because I was, you know, 19 years old and reasonably cute, I, <laughs> I, I managed to acquire a certain amount of attention. And um, Ian and I started dating after... Uh, yeah, uh, Henry Alarm Clock and I had a very mild flirtation briefly, and he and Ian did not get along at all. And so, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at one point, Ian wrote this poem about how he had a crush on a <laughs> unspecified girl at the poetry readings and how he wasn't going to let that guy have her. And it was actually about me and how he was pissed off at Henry Alarm Clock for flirting with me. And, um, yeah... Now we're all Facebook friends. Yeah. Um, as tends to happen. But, um, yeah, it was it was a really tight-knit group of people. Um, Seth was part of it as well. And a couple of others whose names escape me at this point. I'd have to go back and take a look at some of it. Um, but Ted and Ian and I started hanging out a bunch, the three of us. And Ted had done the Asheville, North Carolina Slam. And we'd all seen the movie Slam with, uh, oh, what's his name? Saul. Saul Williams. Yes, Saul Williams. I wanted to say Saul White, and that's different. But uh, we'd all seen this, um, seen this movie, and Ted had done the Slam in North Carolina, and so Ted was like, hey, guys, we should put together a Slam. And Ian and I were just like, yeah, we're going to be famous. It'll be awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> Slam and Don famous. Becker. Don Becker was part of this whole production as well. Oh, Don. Uh, he wasn't, like, part of the people that started it, because ultimately it was started by me and Ian and Ted. And the three of us just bounced from bar to bar to bar in Denver, trying to find a place that would host us. Um, and because at first Marilyn McGinnity said that she found the slam to be vulgar. Vulgar? <laughs> and she refused, yeah, she refused to let us do it. But there, she refused to let us be at the Merc, hmm. and so um, we we bounced around at different venues trying to find a place with a decent sized stage and where you could smoke inside at that time, and you could purchase alcohol because alcohol was intrinsic to slamming, according to Ted. <laughs> and we ended up at the Fifteenth Street Tavern, which was a hole. I mean, it was it was ugly. Yeah. I I had seen a couple of uh, bands play at the 15th Street Tavern before it got closed down, and yeah, there there are a few dive bars that are divier than the 15th Street Tavern for sure. Yeah, it was a dive. It was a dive. I mean, it had the urine-soaked alleys and everything, and you know, it was an off night. I think Um, I'm not sure. I think we did it on Sundays then too, but the 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 bar was empty. You know, I mean, there was nobody there. And I remember the first slam that we had. Um, I want to say Don Becker won, actually. Awesome. The very first slam. Um, and it was a tiny little collection of people. I want to say maybe 10 or 20, max. And, um, yeah, Ian competed, and I competed, and Don Becker was there. 
and a couple of others. And um, it was pretty funny because you had all of these, you know, wizened old Bukowski-looking regulars that were just kind of sitting at the bar wondering what the fuck had just happened to their watering hole. And all of us are standing on stage, you know, shaking our fists at the sky. And I remember there's this one dude that we managed to somehow coerce him into judging. And he, he took it so seriously. I mean, he sat there like the thinker, you know, listening to every word. He was so intense. And he panned me. He hated me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I want to say that we were there for a couple of months, maybe. It was not long. Um, I couldn't say for certain how long, but... Um, Marilyn finally relented and let us uh, take the Mercury Cafe. And it was... <laughs> I remember we all had to... We all tried our hands at making up flyers for uh, the Mercury Cafe Poetry Slam, and we showed them to Marilyn because we wanted her, you know, blessing and approval and all that. Right. And I remember Ian made one, and we showed it to Marilyn, and I remember her saying something to the tune of, the only thing that I find more vulgar than the slam is that flyer. <laughs> No. Yeah, yeah, it was oh, no. funny. Uh, I don't remember how Ian took that. <laughs> but um, the three of us, Ian and Ted and I, we took turns hosting that first year. And Ian and I were together, and um, we were kind of engaged for a while. Um, and Ian and I always refused to compete against each other. And so the only times that Ian and I slammed against each other was at the uh, team selection. And uh, do you remember what when the first year that Denver Senate team was? Was it 99 or was it 2000? I want to say it was 2000. 2000. 2000 first year. And that team, <laughs> it was funny. It was just towards the end of the slam season. And Andrea Gibson had just erupted into the slam for like the last two slams before team selection. And I remember watching her and thinking, she's better than all of us. You know, <laughs> just being like, oh, crap, she's better than all of us. And, um, and yeah, Andrea was just, she was astonishing. She was so good. And um, that year, the, the slam team consisted of me, Ian, Seth, a girl named Andrea Moore, and Andrea Gibson was our alternate. Mm -hmm. Which is shocking to me. Yeah. Um, I actually, I was the slam champion for that first year. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and we went out to um, Rhode Island. I think it was, uh, God, where was it, Providence, Rhode Island, I think? I do not know. I don't know. That was, that was the first year that we went. And I remember that um, Marilyn actually... Or there were a couple of people that actually footed the bill for us to get to nationals that year. Hmm. And, um, yeah, otherwise we did not have nearly enough money to, um, we didn't have nearly enough money to get there. And <laughs> this is a lesser known secret about the Denver Poetry Slam. Um, and it's, it's somewhat controversial to tell you, to be honest. Uh-oh. Um, but that first year, Ted, he's got a daughter. And Ted needed money to pay his child support payments. And Ian was the treasurer for the uh, slam. And Ian gave Ted money out of the slam treasury to pay his child support. Oh, no. 
And I found out about it, and I lost my shit. <laughs> I went bonkers at Ian. I was so mad at him. And I think, I'm not sure what ended up happening, but I think Ian was so embarrassed that he ended up paying it back out of his own pocket. Because huh. I just, yeah, I, I I gave him both barrels. I was mad. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's the kind of thing that happened in those days. <laughs> So you're you're at the nationals in Rhode Island. Uh, what was that first experience like? What was that first nationals like for you? Well, the funny thing is, is Ted was operating on. It was it was like an old operating system, you know. He was because I think he had done the slam back in '92 or something like that, or a few years earlier. Well, the Asheville team I think won in '95. I want to say the... that might have been it. I don't know, yeah. but. It had changed so much between those few years that um, Ted thought that it would be a great idea if the Denver team just kind of, you know, nobody knew anything about us, and we showed up to the venue at the last minute and, like, took the place by storm. And all of us were just, you know, we're just a bunch of dumb kids. We're like, all right, cool, whatever you say, Ted. And... Um, <laughs> And so we all hang out till the last minute, and we were staying in this dorm room um, at the university, and we all hang out till the very last minute to go to the slam venue. And we get there, and all the seats are taken, the place is packed, and they were like, they come running up to us and like, are you guys Denver? We thought you weren't going to show up. <laughs> so pissed off at us, and we're just like, what, what? Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And Ted was just like, I guess things have changed. Because, <laughs> you know, he had, like, this whole dark horse fantasy about what was going to happen. That was really awkward. And I will say that that was the first time um, we went up against, I think it was whatever team Taylor Molly was on that year. I don't know if that was the New Yorkans or what, but it was a New York team. Yeah. Um, I want to say the, that's, that's the one that I distinctly remember. And we just got fucking stomped. Oh, I mean, it was it was shameful. Because, I mean, we just, we were so used to our slam in our city. And, you know, and our idiom, if you will. You know, it was like we had our own little slam culture and we were rock stars in our town. You know, we're just like, yeah, we're going to be awesome. We're going to do great. And it was dismal. It was so dismal. And we came in dead last, and um, I remember um, at that time I was teaching poetry to a bunch of juvenile delinquents at this, um, like, they called it an independent living, or no, a um, residential treatment center, but it was actually a, a jail for, <laughs> for high schoolers, you know, it was right. basically a juvenile detention center. And I took all of this video footage and I interviewed everybody because um, I wanted to show these kids, you know, hey, this is the National Slam because they'd all seen the movie. And so I interviewed Taylor Molly and um, he was he was a little condescending. He <laughs> was like, oh, you're so bad and it's so cute. <laughs> Thanks, man. And, um... But it was just, it was, it was an eye-opening experience in terms of what poetry had become and what performance poetry really was. Hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we just got annihilated. 
Um, but it was really cool because that was also the first time that I'd ever seen uh, Shane, whose last name I still can't pronounce. Koisan? Yes. And he won individual championships, and all of us were just, our mouths were on the floor. You know, I mean, we were just agape at the talent that we were surrounded by. And um, the funny thing is, is for the next three years, it was the same team from Denver over and over again. It was me, Ian, Seth, and Andrea, and Polly Lippman. So for like, for like three years, the five of us just kept going to nationals. And, um, yeah, and Andrea was champion the following year and the year after that, I believe. And so we were a really tight-knit little clique, and there was, like, a couple of interchanges in there. And, like, one year, Ian was the alternate, and Polly was the fourth member, and then the year after that, they switched places. Right. Um, one year, um, Ian was going... Ian, Ian didn't make the team, but the guy that actually did make the team, he realized that he couldn't go, and so at the team selection slam, he basically just bowed out and told Ian, you know, good luck, man, it's up to you. Nice. And that was, Ian went running up on stage and hugged him. His name was Micah, I believe. I Yes. I, I've only ever seen him once. Yeah. And yeah. it was in, like, the first month that I ever started doing it, back in 2004. Yeah. He was yeah. a really good kid. Yeah, he was, um, he was in school or something, right? He went to school in, like, Greeley or Fort Collins, I think. I think so. I don't yeah. know. It was some... He competed because he could. You know, he won a slam so he could compete. Right. But he had no intention, and I think he was astonished that he made the team, technically. He was, from what I remember of him, he was, he was good. He had some chops. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah he was a really, and he was a really nice guy. We actually, we went to the same church. <laughs> there you <laughs> at go. The time. And, uh, yeah. And Tony Sabella um, ended up there... I want to say probably 2002 is when he came back from California. And Tony, Tony, <laughs> it's, it's hard to adequately describe the person that Tony was, to me at least. Um, he was this, he was like this, it was like having Gandalf, you know, <laughs> your poetry Because here's just this, this character that had been through everything and had seen it all and used to tell me stories about Jack or Alan, and I'd be like, do, do you mean Jack Kerouac? Do you, do you mean Alan Ginsberg? He's like, yeah, what a fucker that guy was. <laughs> <laughs> and he would tell me stories about going and hanging out with Alan Ginsberg in Boulder, and how Alan Ginsberg had like this endless supply of young nubile boys doing his dishes for him. <laughs> and, and so it was like, Tony just... He, oh man, um, Tony decided that I was his, I was his girl, you know, and, and um, nothing, nothing, nothing romantic ever happened between us, but it was just like we hung out with each other. I moved into his, his trailer at one point. The two of us lived in this, like, single-wide trailer together for a while, and, um, yeah, we were just, we were a team, and we would hang out in his studio, and we would put together crazy collages and write poems, and I remember he went to the 2002 National Slam with us, and it was just, it was cool, it was so cool, and he was so cool, and he would sit in the back of the slam, um, 
that year we got stomped again. Um, <laughs> we, we, we got stomped regularly every year that I was on the slam scene. Now, I, and, I've uh, heard in in the annals of, of, like, Denver lore that the team, even if they didn't do terrific, they improved every year. Is, is oh, that yeah. safe to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we crawled our way up from the hole. Yeah. Now, yeah, 2002... We improved every year, but what was, really, what was really fucking awful was the year that I moved away and I went to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was the year that Denver finally made, like, the top four. And it was just like, motherfucker. That's 2004, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, I'd slammed yeah. for, um, I'd slammed at Denver for five years, and then the moment that I moved away, suddenly we just shot up to the t top ranks. Mm -hmm. And it was like, maybe it was me, I don't know. <laughs> nah. Well, uh, back to 2002, um, you uh, did, what, like a featured poem or a sorbet poem for the Indie Finals that year? I did the sorbet poem for the first round of the Indies, uh, the individual slam competition. I did a poem called Pretty. This is about my own someday daughter when you approach me, already stung, stained with insecurity, begging, Mom, will I be pretty? Will I be pretty? I will wipe that question from your mouth like cheap lipstick and answer, No! The word pretty is unworthy of everything you will be, and no child of mine will be contained in five letters. You will be pretty intelligent, pretty creative, pretty amazing, but you will never be merely pretty. Um, which is kind of like my, my free bird, or, you know, my um, Hotel California, or whatever. Not that I'm as awesome as, you know, <laughs> the Eagles or Led Zeppelin or whatever, but... um. Yeah, I did, a, I did the clearing poem for the National Poetry Slam individual competition. And it was, it was a trip because I did it and it was cool and, you know, it was a great experience. And um, what was funny is that I had been practicing that poem, I'd written that poem and had been practicing it with the team and everything like that. And afterwards, somebody comes up to me and says, Pretty has six letters. Because all this time I've been going, you know, no daughter of mine will be contained in five letters. And everybody, the entire team, P-R-E-T-T-Y. <laughs> <laughs> no! The entire that, team had that missed whole time. it. The entire team for months, months, and everybody missed it. And it was just like, oh my god, <laughs> holy shit. I think that was actually the first thing you ever said to me the first time I ever met you. Really? Because I had, yes, I had seen the 2002 uh, DVD, or at least your performance on that 2002 DVD, and I was like, yeah, it was I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. And you're like, yeah, you'd think I'd know how many letters were in pretty. <laughs> like that was like the first thing you said to me at the linoleum back in the day. Yeah, and I mean, I, I still. <laughs> what, what, what's comical is literally like six or maybe eight years later. I'm not sure how, but that, that poem ended up on YouTube. You know, that performance of that poem ended up on YouTube. And it went viral, so to speak. And so literally eight years after the fact, all of a sudden I had all of these people friending me on Facebook and asking me where was my website and would I come and do, you know, motivational speaking for their school and stuff like that. And I'm just, this is like... I hadn't, literally, I had not slammed since 2005, I think. And so it was, yeah, it was like five years later, and, you know, I started doing other stuff, and all of a sudden everyone was like, 
you're my favorite poet ever! Oh my god! It was just like, I don't really slam anymore. Sorry. So that was, it was weird. It was weird. And even now, um, every now and then, it'll, it'll make the rounds on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever, and I'll, I'll get like 10 or 15 friend requests from high schoolers around the country. Nice. And uh, sometimes, yeah, I'll get, you know, I'll get contacted over Twitter or something like that, and it'll be, you know, some girl that it spoke to, and she'll be asking me if she can perform it for her college, you know, um, forensics class, or, you know, do it for a speech or something like that. I've had people put it to music. I've had a couple of people do interpretive dance to it. And wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool in that um, I, I feel... I feel strangely honored to have put something out there that affected people the way that that poem seems to have done. And, you know, I, I feel like um, there, there are certain things that we do in our life that it's like it comes from somewhere else and we're just like this conduit for it to enter, you know, human consciousness. Hmm. It's like I don't know how much I really had to do with that poem because um, the focus of it was to just take my experience and open it up and make it more universal in terms of, you know, this is the kind of struggle that I face as a woman in worrying about being physically attractive. And it, it hit a button, it would seem. Mm -hmm. But it was a long time ago, and it was just one poem. And it's, it's funny how it's kind of propagated via the Internet. Yeah. So when you wrote that, was it... Uh... Was it more like a, you just got a sudden bout of inspiration? Was it like something you've been working on for a little while and been crafting? How did the uh, creation of that poem come out? Pretty was a poem that I had been working on for a very, very long time. And I feel like the better poems that I've written in my life, many of which were completed long after I stopped slamming, um, which is kind of a shame, um, some of them have taken literally, I want to say that Pretty took a couple of years to write. Um, because I knew what my experience was and I knew how it felt. Um, but knowing how to knowing how to take that experience and blossom it out into something that was more than just another disenfranchised white girl whining about how people only liked me for my tits, you know? Mm. <laughs> Trying to Rounded out because I'm beautiful, kind of thing, right? Yeah, that it was yeah. that it was. Um, oh, I mean, not even that. Just you know, don't hate me because I'm ugly. Don't you know? Why why does this exterior matter so much? Right. Um, but trying to turn it into something that was more. This is you know this this is a story about all of us and how incomplete our lives are as a result of being so obsessed with our appearances and figuring out how to say that in a way that felt universal and inclusive and didn't alienate people and so you know you start with your own experience of like you know look this is what happened to me and then find out a way to say this is what happened to us this is what is happening to us and how do we stop it hmm. um, it took a while and I'm notoriously bad with finishing poems hmm. um, and so it took 
it took a long time to finally get to where I felt like that ended the way I wanted it to, um, in a way that felt powerful. Um, and yeah, that's that's still a problem that I have um, is ending poems. You know, it's like because I'll say a lot of really cool shit, and then like the last line, it just kind of goes. <laughs> You're like, and then the poem's over. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, cliche. Ta-da. Um, it one takes, of the it other. It takes a while to work out of that. You know, it takes a while to figure out how exactly to drop the mic and walk off the stage. So one of the other uh, big poems that I remember from those early days are you and this guy. Hello. Had a duet. Paul? That's Paul yeah. right there. Holy hi! Hey, <laughs> <laughs> man. Yeah. Eddie, did you know that Polly and I, we were, um, before we ever became poetry compatriots, we worked the Renaissance festivals together. Yeah, what? Yeah, we worked the, uh, the, uh, uh Bonner Springs, Kansas. Kansas. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, no, like, no when he, I'm sitting there one night, another world talking to Ian, who we apparently both hated each other at that point, he's like, oh, yeah, my girlfriend's here, and she walks in, I'm like, Kate? I know you already, there this we is go. so weird, the world is, like, <laughs> this big, yes. the world is, like, this big. It is. Oh, awesome, all right, I'm gonna let, get you back to it, um, and, yes, bug me bug. next time you're back in Denver. So uh, that was the other big poem that I remember seeing back in my early days, is you and uh, Polly had that duet. Um, oh, that was a great poem. Talk oh to my me God. about that. How did it come about? Um, well, I don't, what, what was first going on? of all, I don't, what was it called? What was the title? It, wasn't it Voyeur or something like that? I'm not sure. What was the title of that? Voyeur. Voyeur, yep. Yep. Okay, it was Voyeur. Um, so what happened was Polly and I, we're hanging out in Netherworld, um, Cafe Netherworld on 13th and Penn, 13th and Pennsylvania, or was it 14th? No, it was 13th. 13th. Um, 13th and Pennsylvania. And there was this guy there that I had, he was part of the goth community, and I was marginally part of the goth community because I never like wore black lipstick or dyed my hair. Um, and his name, I think, was David? I don't remember. Um... And he had no idea that I was alive, naturally. Um, and I had just the biggest crush on him. I, I had it bad for this dude because he was so sexy. And he was just, like, smolderingly dangerous, you know? <laughs> and we would all end up at um, Club Onyx, which was another goth-frequented place. And he, he was an amazing dancer. I mean, this guy could do the gothic two-step like nobody's business. I mean, he was the gothic two-step. He was just... <laughs> he was so hot. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just had the biggest crush on him, but I was never going to talk to him. You know, I was never going to actually go up and introduce myself and have a conversation. And I'm guessing that the way that I longingly stared at him was probably really off-putting, so there was no way he was ever going to approach me. Um, at the same time, Polly had a crush on a girl in the goth community. Um, I don't remember what her name was. I'm sure he does if you ask him. Yeah, Go ahead. Uh, Polly, what was your crush uh, that the impetus of that poem? Um, era. Era. And I just remember... Like, the two of us sitting in Cafe Netherworld, and I'm staring at David, and he's staring at Era, and the two of them started dating each other. <laughs> <laughs> and Polly and I are just 
just sitting there going, God damn it. God damn. <laughs> this is the dumbest problem ever. <laughs> and uh, we ended up, I had, I had written that poem about him, and in my book, um, You Know, which is published by Edward in Passion Press, mm-hmm. and you know, it doesn't have an ISPN number, it's like super chat bookie, you know, <laughs> it's a cool poetry book, I like it, I was really proud of it, but um, it has my original um, voyeur, it has my poem voyeur in there without Polly's part at all, mm-hmm. and so I had written this poem about this guy, and I think Polly had written a poem about that girl, and the two of us got it into our heads that we were going to combine these two poems. Just once, I want to be the asshole. I want to be the bitch. I, I want to be, be the unhealthy addiction instead of the sappy Denied. Dependable. Expendable. Always understanding. Never underhanding. Safe. Sweet. Weak. Completely. Lame. Little chump. Fuck platonic! I don't want to hear how he's your soulmate. Don't tell me she's your destiny. Two ships passing in the night? Star-crossed lovers? Give me a fucking break, please! And I remember it was St. Louis. Um, Yeah, it was the St. Louis year, I want to say. That same year that I did Pretty, it was 2002. And I think that was the first year that Denver really started to pick up a little bit of speed and gain some notoriety. Um, Because... It was the, our first bout, that first night, and um, Polly and I did voyeur, and we got, like, straight tens, and then I rounded out the night, and in the final um, round, I did pretty. And we won. And Denver won a bout, and <laughs> all of us were just like, Oh, my God! <laughs> Where are we? Wait, Denver, we finally won! <laughs> And the next night we got dumped. <laughs> so was it, uh, help me with yeah. the, the logistics back then, was it just one prelim and then semis, or did you have two prelim bouts to get to semis back then? We had two prelims, we had two nights of prelims, and then semis, and then finals. So you won your first prelim bout, and yep. then not so much your second prelim bout. Not the second one. In my <laughs> slam career with Denver, we never once made it to semi semifinals. Not mm. once. It was tragic. <laughs> <laughs> but you end up doing that uh, sorbet piece. Um, you got to, to do the, the indie clearing stuff. Um, yeah. What, uh, in the moment, did that open any doors for you? Did that make any opportunities that you didn't have before, like immediately following it? Um, a little bit. Um, because after I did pretty in our prelim bout, I did it th- that first night. Um, I was ranked second um, individually, like of the entire slam community. I was second wow. place. And I was just like, okay. Whoa! Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of drama the following night because Ted wanted me to open um, the next night. He wanted me to open the next round. He wanted me to go first. And I was like, Ted, that's going to ruin my chances of being, you know, in the indies. You know, if if I go first, because, you know, you're kind of, even though there's a clearing poem, if you're in the first round, you're kind of a sacrificial lamb. And I was like, but Ted, I'm, 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 I'm second individually, you know, I mean, this, this could really, you know, <laughs> I, I could actually go pretty far here. And Ted was basically like, I don't fucking care, you're going first. Now, and... for, for people who don't know what, what this conversation's about, back then, in this 
time and place, they had an individual competition at the National Poetry Slam, and the way that they determined yeah. who was going to make that is by high score in each bout. And so, yes. like you said, the early poems tend to <laughs> not get scored as well as the later poems. Yeah, so yeah, because you... people are still they're still drinking and they're still working up to being excited. Right. And there are a number of teams that employed that strategy, like a. Uh, uh, I know back in 2006, Taylor Molly was really pushing uh, Jamie Kilstein to make that individual uh, bow, yeah. individual say, and so he had have Jamie Kilstein read in the solo in every single last uh, last round of the bout, and so there were exactly. some teams that did that, but then there yeah, were some teams, some that, teams that didn't. That. So. And Ted yeah. Ted put the kibosh on it. He was like, "No, we're a team. You're going first. And I'm like, yeah. ah. <laughs> Um but kind of piggybacking on that, and I don't know whether or not this would have happened um, anyway, but I went on a very small um, poetry tour, because that's what we were doing at that time. You know, it's like right. you just pack up your shit and you travel around the country for a couple of months featuring at the slams. And so, you know, I contacted slams around the East Coast, and I was just like, hey, you know, my name's Kate McKay. I'm Denver Slammer. I was, you know... Second individually after the first night. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, okay, come on down. Yeah, they're like, whatever, come visit us. <laughs> and, mm. yeah, and I, I just, I traveled around a little bit. Andrea was supposed to go with me. Mm. Um, and we were going to do, like, a two-person feature tour. And she backed out, and so I went by myself. And, um, yeah, you know, the funny thing is, is... Pretty didn't really gain a lot of attention until literally, like like I said, like five years later. And at that point, I was in the thick of my um, emergency medical career, yeah. you know, and I was working, and um, I had recently been diagnosed with what would turn into cancer. Mm -hmm. And so slamming was just, I was still writing. I was writing a lot. I still do. I write a lot of nonfiction essays about being a medical examiner and stuff like that. But um, I just, I wasn't writing poetry anymore. And at that point I had kind of retired from slamming because um, slamming was a real, it was a mixed bag for me um, in that I, I began to understand that I'm a fiercely competitive person. I mean, super, super competitive. And uh, I was so into slamming and I was so into winning that when I would write a good poem and I'd perform a good poem and I would get a good score, um, the first thing that would go through my head is now I have to do better. Hmm. You know, and it's like, and it was just like this, this relentless, almost obsessive compulsive drive. And when I would hear someone do a good poem or, you know, recite a good poem, get a good score, rather than just be happy that that poem existed, you know, rather than just be happy that, you know, I had heard this awesome poem and, you know, be um, elevated and enlightened by it, I would get angry and be like, how am I going to beat it? I have to come up with something that's just as good. And then you find yourself, you know, combing the headlines for something to be angry about so you can write a poem. Hmm. And... It really, the magic of poetry just kind of leaked out like a sieve. And so by the time I stopped slamming, I was just, I didn't like who I was at poetry readings. And so I just wasn't really doing it anymore. Um, I, I live in Portland now, and there's a Portland Poetry Slam. And I actually went to one a few weeks ago. 
Um, How was that? Like, earlier this year, I want to say it may have been March or April. And I went to one, and, you know, the thing is, is I'm actually thinking that I might start doing the Portland Slam. What? Just, just for the sake of doing it, because, you know, I really love poetry, and I kind of miss it. I miss that part of myself, and I just need to, you know, keep it in check. <laughs> because, I mean, like anything that's competitive, it can really eat away at, eat away at you mm. if you're not careful. And yeah, it turns into a contest more than an art form. But that's some that's some pretty big news. Kate McKay coming out of retirement to go to Portland Poetry Slam. That's a maybe. I mean, that's the thing is the couple of the poems that I've written since then, uh, when I actually timed them, they were like four and a half minutes long. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> those are the best kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so editing those down is gonna be is gonna be a trick. And it's also a question of, okay, so my first night back slamming, do I bust out pretty just for the hell of it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So you're, you're all professional. You're, you're at a conference right now in Las Vegas yeah. because you have a secretary, and your secretary thought it would be a good idea for you to go. Um, well, <laughs> no, she, I, I, I wanted to come because the, the professional conferences are always really interesting. At least, you know, on an anthropological level. It's always curious to see who else has your job. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about what you're doing. Um, what What is life look like where Kate McKay right now? Well, I am a medical legal death investigator. Um, yeah, um, I investigate reportable deaths. And it's if you watch an episode of CSI, um, that's actually my job. Yeah. Um, I yeah. It's like I do field work. I go to the scenes of homicides and suicides and accidents and mysterious deaths, and I interview witnesses and I take pictures and I collect evidence and all of that stuff. Um, and then I write up a report and send it to a forensic pathologist. And sometimes I assist with autopsies. And <laughs> it's all death yeah. all the time. Um, I locate next of kin. Um, I, I terrorize the fire department, which really amuses me. Um, I talk shit with the police officers, which is something that I really want to write about in the near future. That being that, you know, it's it's really weird to have spent so much time in this subversive artist community, and now suddenly the police officers that I work with are some of the best people that I know. Right. And that's a strange juxtaposition because, you know, there's the anti-establishment, you know, fuck the police, and then there's, like, my buddy Mike, who, <laughs> when we're on scenes together, he tells me stories about his husky, you know? Yeah. It's like, but, yeah, fuck the police, but Mike, but you know? Mike. <laughs> but Mike! And how is the uh, the fight with cancer coming? Ah, uh, it's a tricky one. Um, I was diagnosed with follicular tropic mycosis fungoides, which is a form of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Mm. Um, it, is not, it is not well understood. You know, that's what I get from all of my doctors. Uh, not a lot of people have it, and it's not curable. Um, I'll never be in remission. It's always there. And it is a cancer that lives in my skin, uh, hence the cutaneous. Cutaneous, yeah. And it manifests with me, with my particular variant. It manifests as 
an itchy papular rash that when it's at its zenith, it almost looks like smallpox. Wow. <laughs> it's scary looking. Um, I keep it at bay. I did two rounds of radiation therapy, which was a total horror show. Um, but, you know, when people say cancer to you, when a doctor says cancer, the you just your mind just kind of goes, oh, my God, what do we do? I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And they're like, right. you're doing chemo and radiation. You're like, fine, I'm doing chemo and radiation. And... In that, in that place of fear, you don't recognize that you have other options. And I wish I would have had the presence of mind, or somebody near me would have had the presence of mind to research other options, because radiation therapy did not help. And it, in fact, caused more problems than it solved. But in um, your experience, so what has helped? Oh, well, in my experience, what helped is um, right now I try to keep an anti-inflammatory diet. Um, and right. so that's about as depressing as our first year at SLAM. You know, <laughs> it's dismal. <laughs> yeah. oh. um, I, and it's, 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 it's wretched. It's like no red meat, no sugar, no dairy, no white rice, no gluten, no cured meats, no citrus, yeah. no... Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Nothing but leafy um, greens then for you, and that's it. Yeah, it's like kale and wild-caught salmon, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but also, I take high-dose lipid-soluble vitamin C, as well as high doses of uh, turmeric, curcuminoids, pharmaceutical-grade curcuminoids. Um, and I'm also starting to experiment with... Um, I've recently decided to bite the bullet and start trying out um, marijuana therapies. And so I have like a topical THC rub that I put on it, and that seems to be helping some. Okay. Um, I, I despise being high. I mean, it's like, it's such a shame that this cancer didn't happen to someone that is a total pothead. Because <laughs> I, I hate being high. I fucking hate it. And the other day, my roommates um, back in Portland, uh, one of them likes being high. And so <laughs> we have a whole bunch of weed cookies in the freezer. And all my doctors have said, you know, well, yeah, you can use CBD oil, but CBD works best when it's paired with some THC. And I'm like, oh, do I have to? And they're like, well, just try it. Just work up to it. And I'm like, motherfucker, okay. And so I ate half a weed cookie and woke up in the middle of the night having a panic attack. Oh, <laughs> I'm just no. like, I'm too high, I'm too high, oh my god, what am I going to do? Um, well, but you but you also, not to end things on like a down note, you also have gotten into uh, like aerial dancing, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I now do uh, aerial silks, trapeze, and I actually just started doing aerial chains. And so I hang from chains from the ceiling, <laughs> yeah. twirl around and do stuff. And uh, my, my aerial company, we have a Halloween show that we're all training for right now. I uh, work out with a group called Night Flight Aerial Arts. Awesome. And they, they picked me to be part of the Halloween show, and we're going to be a bunch of goblins in the air. Nice. So that's pretty cool. Cool. So there you go. Um, I normally end these interviews by asking whoever I'm talking to 
what their wish for Denver poetry is, but I, I don't know what kind of an answer I would get from you because you've not really been here for a while. Yeah, so, I haven't been there for a while. Um, so how about I just throw some names at you, and I want you to give me, like, your reaction to those names. All right. Okay? So I want you to, like, blank your mind. Like, you're thinking of nothing right now. All right, all right. <laughs> all right. We'll go over some familiar ones to start you off with, and then we'll get to some ones we haven't maybe covered. So, uh, first name, Ian Doggerty. Love. Uh, Ted Baca. Love. <laughs> <laughs> no, dumpster. Ted gets Dump dumpster. Ted gets dumpster. Okay. Ted gets dumpster. Because um, I have a picture of him one night when he was really drunk. He crawled in the dumpster outside of his apartment building. And I have pictures of Ted sitting in his dumpster, and he looks so happy. <laughs> he looks so happy. Yeah. <laughs> Paulie Lippman. Goofball. Okay. Andrea Gibson. Genius. Ken Arkind. Brother. Tony Sabella. Soulmate. I'm sorry. He, it's okay. It's okay. I miss him a lot. Uh, Black Ace Bowery. <laughs> Secrets. Lenny Trinella. <laughs> oh, man. Subversive. Jessica Trinella. <laughs> this sounds weird to say, but bitchin'. <laughs> she, she's, a, she's a bitchin' woman. <laughs> yep, yep. She was she was hardcore. I loved her. Stan Ostrovsky. Sweetheart. Marilyn McGinnity. Valkyrie. Valkyrie. Nice. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think those are those are all the names that I've got off the top of my head. <laughs> Um, is there anything you want to add or throw in there before I turn the recorder off? Oh my gosh. Um, I would tell, um, if I could, I would tell slammers to keep going to open mics. Hmm. And why is that? To go and appreciate and listen to the people that have something to say but don't have all the bells and whistles to say it. Because there's a lot of sincerity and a lot of heart and a lot of amazing things being said that should be heard that aren't because they're not fancy enough. Mm. And I feel like staying staying in touch with the open mic people, you know, the 14-year-old kid that is reading out of his high school notebook or, you know, the little old man who is still coming to the poetry readings even though everybody leaves to get a drink every time he gets up to read. You know, those stay stay in touch with those people. Stay in touch with that scene because that's that's the core and that is the that's the beating heart of poetry is just people that want to say something whether or not anyone is listening. And so don't lose track of those those roots. I don't think I could have ended this thing better. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. All right, thank you very much, Kate. I'll see you later. Another fantastic interview here on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. I really appreciate uh, not only the time and the openness that uh, Kate Mackay gave us, but I really appreciate a lot that, that she said. Uh, really giving us a, a good insight into those early years and, and how hard of a struggle it was at times and, and how much 
Denver as a, a scene was really represented by only a couple of people, and those couple of people had to learn by trial and error how to have success on a national level. And also what she said about uh, being very competitive and recognizing that about herself. I, I really did appreciate that whole uh, section when she said that instead of really appreciating a poem and, and appreciating that it existed, she would get really upset and would have to think of a way to beat that poem's scores, to, to figure out a way to outscore this really beautiful piece of writing or, or performance. Um, really, really great insight to one of the founding members of Poetry Slam in Denver, Colorado. So thank you again very, very much to Kate Mackay. And now, let's get into your Mercury Cafe Poetry Slam. <laughs> Denver. 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 Queen City of the Plains. Lift high our spirit. Sing well our praise. For in you we live and are loved. All right. Your Mercury Cafe opened up with its usual open mic of eight poets. Those open micers were Winston, Connor Marvin, Dot, Jill Carno, Cloven, Barb Tests, Paulie Lippman, and Puck Lone Wolf. I've just got a couple of clips for you to give you an idea of what kind of night it was for the open mic. The first one I'm going to share for you is from Connor Marvin. This is from a poem that I've talked about before, but I, I cannot get over how well-crafted this poem is from Connor Marvin. He's doing so many things in this piece. And this is his one inspired at least partially by the old Ernest Hemingway story about how Hemingway was uh, challenged that he couldn't write uh, an entire story in six words, and so then he wrote the very famous For Sale Baby Shoes Never Worn. And so Connor Marvin takes that idea and really just explodes it, expands it out in this clip. For sale, catwalks over ballet stages, heavy, only used once, one kiss, the night sky and the stars over breaking spins of smooth muscle below, one kiss, the night and the light, the catwalk, only used once. Such a well-crafted piece, such a beautiful, beautiful poem. And that really allows Connor Marvin to discuss a whole lot of things. It allows him to, to discuss uh, ancient mythology. It allows him to discuss redemption. It allows him to discuss uh, fleeting moments of joy or sorrow that a person can experience in, in a lifetime. It's it's so well done, so good. So I did want to share that with you again. I know I've talked about it before, but I think it was good enough to bring up one more time. The other clip I'm going to play for you is from Jill Carno, your slam master. Uh, Jill just keeps growing in her poetry. She keeps growing and expanding and going into places that are very, very brave and, and very, very scary for a lot of other people. Uh, here's a clip from a poem that she admittedly is trying to rework, trying to edit down and, and trying to change things up, but I offer this clip up to you in its raw stage. A while ago, I was telling a friend that I could never have a threesome because when I was 13, two people took enough of me at the same time. She politely responded, no, honey, you don't like gang rape. I had never thought of it that way. Now, it should be noted that Jill did just come off of a feature where she went out of town, went to Kansas, 
and featured out there at the Kansas Slam and just came back and was feeling like super high on that whole experience. And hopefully this will lead to more writing. It'll lead to newer poems. And I personally cannot wait for that to happen. So that was your open mic. Your slam was pretty amazing. We've got some awesome, awesome names on this slam list. First up in the first round, we had Johnny Osai. We had Stylo Marks, Ian D, Changa, Wheeler Light, Ali Eden, Griffith Windland, and Catherine Grace. That is a heck of a first round right there. And if that wasn't enough, then your sacrifice was none other than Denver poetry superhero and former interviewee on this podcast, Theo Lucifuri Wilson. I write these rhymes like breadcrumbs through the maze of my mind when my ego gives me false deceit. Trying to be loose almighty, Zeus of Fury, when Theo means God in Greek. Know thyself is a base theorem of psychology. Life a self-study course. This here's my thesis in theology. What's your name of your religion? Preach me your pants until I ride bareback across clouds of nimbus and I'll put my life in your hands as you reciting and chant like this here stage was Mount Olympus. Thank you. Theo coming with the brand new work just really going in. What's the name of your religion? This stage is Mount Olympus comparing poetry to the religion that got it right. Man, did he have the crowd fired up at this stage and he was just a sacrificial poet. Uh, it was all your host could do to stem the tide of a one two three huzzah after theo read but you know what as a host you got to really really earn those huzzahs and, you know i'm not just giving those away but the crowd not for lack of trying really did try to get a huzzah out of that sacrificial poet out of lucifuri and i thought it was well deserved uh next clip i'm going to play for you is from johnny osai important to note because he was the very first person to go up in the official slam so he had a big hill to climb and this is how he set out his first couple of steps dear good cop this is on you too you are the first row of silence you are the first blind eye you are hand in glove with the iron fist and the trigger finger itch you know who the cowboys are you see their short fuses spark you hear them brag in the locker room as you zip your mouth and button up your blue and Johnny comes out swinging with his Dear Good Cop poem. Always a crowd pleaser, always a heavy hitter, and he knew he had to come out with the explosive work to even make it into the second round, which he absolutely did. Uh, not often that a poet from the very first position can make it into the second round, but Johnny, with just the right poem at the right time, performed the right way, shows you how it can be done. The next clip I'll play for you is from Ian D, because... This is from a newer poem of his, uh, his poem about aging and about what he has become and just reflecting on his life and times and, and where he's at and who he is and, and what that means for him. So here's a quick clip from one of EMD's newer pieces. I have somehow slipped into this existential subculture known as adulting and become what I always said I wouldn't. An upper middle class divorced white suburbanite male with a therapist, an Ikea fetish and a 750 credit rating, getting to know myself as the abstract version of everything I thought I would ever be at this point in my life. And I think I might enjoy the ride if I can just keep the fear at bay long enough to smile and breathe. A great, great piece from the point of view of someone who is embracing 
uh, older age, embracing quote-unquote adulthood, if that's what you want to call it, embracing the responsibilities and, and everything that comes with it, the 750 credit rating and the Ikea fetish, to quote earlier in the poem. So thank you to Ian D for just keep churning out the new work. I'm going to play another new clip from him later on, and that's a spoiler alert because Ian also made it into the second round. Uh, the next clip I'll play for you in this first round is from Wheeler Light. Now, Wheeler really had to go up there and stand out, and this was going to be a tough thing to do with all the names that have came before him uh, in this first round. So he goes up there and he does his his very well-received uh, hot sauce poem, Poem Not Applicable to Hot Sauce Lovers. So here's a quick clip of what Wheeler did to differentiate himself from the rest of the crowd. If you call me faggot, if you call me faggot, if you say faggot three times in the bathroom with the lights off, I will come out of the mirror. And Slam, if nothing else, is a game of momentum. If you can gather and gain a whole lot of momentum in that first round, it makes the later rounds a whole lot easier for you. Your, your poem choices and the way you perform them opens up a whole lot more if you can get the crowd on your side, so to speak, in those early rounds. And that is exactly what Wheeler did with this clip. In fact, he had the second highest score coming out of the first round. The high score went to Catherine Grace, who read in the very last position and did her Galatea poem that I've covered here uh, before. And Catherine had just mountains of momentum coming out of that first round. Uh, Wheeler, not too far behind her, though. So in your second round, we had Ian D, Ali Eden, Johnny Osai, Wheeler Light, and Catherine Grace. We had five names because Ian and Ali each tied for that fourth position, so we just brought them both up on stage for the second round. And I told you I'd play you another clip from a brand new poem from Ian. So here we go, another brand new poem from Ian D. This is his response to when people tell him he falls in love too quickly. I am now experienced in the ways in which love can be conflated to mean other things. After years of flinging my chips all in, I am still not broke. As a result, I am convinced I have an infinite stack of them hidden everywhere love lives because if I didn't, by now I would have nothing left to give. Now, this poem allows me to talk about a couple of things. The, the most important, the foremost thing I want to talk about is that slam by its nature really does facilitate an experience of identity coming from the stage. And what I mean when I say that is a whole lot of the most memorable slam poems, most celebrated slam poems, are about identity. And this is another way to reflect on that identity from Ian's point of view. Uh, we mentioned before in this show that he is reaching this sort of middle age ground. He he is he's gone through some love and some loss, some hardship, but he's embracing these responsibilities. He's embracing these uh, adult tendencies that have you know either he's uh, gone out and searched for or that have been thrown upon him. And part of that identity for him is this idea of falling in love too quickly and what that means not only for him but for the people around him and and what it means for his future and what it means for his past so another great great poem from Ian D unfortunately it would not be enough to get him into the final round uh, next clip I'll play for you is from Wheeler Light this is from his poem about metaphors and similes and this poem will not contain metaphors but it will contain similes which are like metaphors and he keeps using this same refrain over and over again. 
he gives you something which is like something else, something which is like something else. And here's a quick clip of what Wheeler needed to do to establish his momentum once again in the second round. And I'm not a poet, but I'm similar to one. I'm a person in healing, which is kind of like a person shaking a flashlight's batteries and shaking a flashlight's batteries and shaking a flashlight's batteries and shaking. And with that poem, Wheeler had the high score at that time. Uh, we had four people read, including him, with one person left to go in Catherine Grace. And Wheeler had the high score out of everyone. But what typically happens in a poetry slam is that the top two people, or the final two people who read in the second round, will make it into the final round, the third round. Uh, that's not what happened in this case. And I will play you a clip from Catherine's uh, second round poem, and then we'll see if we can dissect why that happened. So here's a clip from Catherine Grace's second round poem. Body still, incubi stealing from me, weight on my chest, taking the breath from me. <gasps> I wake alone, there is a pounding on the other side of the wall. I am night terror, still dreaming, heart race, still the girl from that other place. The scared girl I was in my dreams gasping, gasping. As I mentioned before, Catherine had all the momentum in the world. She had a couple of points lead on everyone coming out of the first round, and the crowd was really on her side. So why then did she not make it out of the second round into the third with the poem she performed in the second round? Many reasons possible for that, but the one that I want to talk about today is that there are these different types of poems that you're likely to run into at a poetry slam. So they're poems that convey an experience or an emotion, or they're poems that attempt to place the audience inside that inexperience or an emotion. And I think this poem from Catherine Grace was one of those that tries to place the audience inside an experience. And typically, I don't want to say, you know, all the time, but typically, the poems that try to place the audience inside an experience or an emotion don't score as well as the ones that just try to convey that emotion. The poem has to be extremely well written and it has to be extremely uh, uplifting or empowering or say something that's really going to charge the audience for it to resonate the way the poems that convey experience or emotion do if you try to drop someone into it. Uh, this almost in a way reminds me of a poem that we did back in 2012, the team did, where we tried to place the audience inside the mind of a serial killer. Uh, using multiple voices, and, and each voice was going to represent a different personality, and it fell really, really flat. The audience did not want that at all, because it didn't charge them, it didn't empower them. In fact, it was really unnegotiated, bad, bad time for a lot of the audience members, and so they're not going to reward something like that. Catherine Grace for at least some of this poem, tries to place the audience inside this anxiety, these terrors, this, this nightmare that she's living through. And while it is performed very, very well, and the writing is, is very, very excellent, it's just one of those that the audience, it has to be the exact right room for it to be rewarded in a way that's going to reflect itself in scores. Uh, I'm sure that she resonated with a lot of individuals in that room, and I'm sure that uh, a lot of people were very appreciative of this poem and maybe even came up and talked to her afterwards. But typically, by and large, these types of poems are not going to score very well for that reason. Because slam is, if nothing else, a reader response art form. It's you presenting your artwork to a random crowd of people and getting instantaneous feedback from that crowd, the reader response. And by and large, people like to feel good. 
people like to feel better at the end of a poem than they did at the beginning of a poem. And these ones that relate these really tough experiences, really triggering or traumatizing experiences, don't oftentimes have that same effect. So I'm not saying that this was a bad poem. This was a really good poem. I'm not saying it was a bad performance. It was a really good performance. I'm just offering up why I feel it might not have scored as well as Catherine had hoped. So off my soapbox, we're moving on to the third round. We had Johnny Osai and Wheeler Light in the third round. Johnny Osai went first and Wheeler Light he just, he found a whole new gear in this third round. I grew up under the burning roof of this man who turned my mother into his punchline, who just wanted to show me how hard he could punch. It was never a joke, not funny, not something me and mom can look back on laughing like, ha, I can't believe that happened. There are some jokes you know you're not supposed to laugh at, like a father calling his son faggot, or a husband calling his wife incompetent. I grew up under the burning roof of this man and there were fires in every room of him. So if Slam is a game of momentum, then Wheeler recognized that he now had all of it left, and he was going to capitalize on that. Uh, Johnny went up and did one of his better-known, better-received pieces. He did Scattered Seeds, which we've covered before uh, on this podcast and talked about. It is a very well-received poem and scored very highly. But Wheeler, he just reached down and he found that extra gear, that, that extra new performance level for this poem that he's done a number of times. It's a well-received, well-liked poem, but he reached down and, and he found new ways to, to really explore that poem and, as a result, walked away with a win. So a couple of takeaways that we can talk about before we get out of here. Uh, first of all, this last slam on last Sunday was, was a perfect example of many strategic elements within slam. Uh, reading off paper versus being memorized. Uh, poem choice momentum, but it was also an example of the less competitive elements of slam. Doing the poem that you wanted to do as a poet, instead of doing the poem that you think the audience would reward. And I think that's what Catherine wanted to do in that second round. It was the poem she wanted to do. And whether or not the audience was going to reward it the same way they would uh, Wheeler or Johnny, uh, that didn't matter. She wanted to read the poem she wanted to read. Um, a lot of people, especially in the first round, read off paper. And some of those people had success. Ian Doggerty had success. Uh, memorized, more people had more success memorized. And I think that's really the, re the reason why Ian and Ali tied in the first round. is because uh, Ian, while he maybe had the superior poem and the superior uh, conveyance vocally of that poem, Ali was memorized and made a stronger connection with the audience with her poem and ended up tying with Ian. So they had to you know, duke it out in the bottom part of the second round. Um, just a couple of things you're likely to run into at the Poetry Slam. Before we get out of here, we are even still today looking for more volunteers for the National Poetry Slam when it comes to Denver, Colorado. Time is ticking away, and if you would like to go see these preliminary bouts and semifinals and group piece finals for free without paying a single dime, then all you got to do is go to npsdenver.com click on the Get Involved button and be a volunteer. Now this does not get you into the finals. And if you would like to go to the finals and purchase tickets for that, you can do so at a separate website. All the information for that is at npsdenver.com. Uh, finals tickets are at Altitude. Everything else is through the website. Once again, check out this upcoming Sunday, the 30th, is your team send-off. They will be coming back from Baton Rouge from a regional that they're competing in as I record this podcast, as I'm speaking. They are in New Orleans, Louisiana, getting ready to take on 
uh, seven other teams in this regional. So, well, let's welcome them back on Sunday when they come back, hopefully triumphant, and get them nice and ready and primed for the National Poetry Slam when it comes in just a little over a week. So that'll do it for you this week. I would like to say thank you very much to Jessica Bardot. The person that, like, the the final night of uh, the National Poetry Slam in the year 2000, she got really drunk and bitched me out. To Jill Carno. She turns to me and goes, you know what, Kate? Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and to the audience at the Mercury Cafe. You write poems about world peace. You're so, so full of shit. Once again, always remember that the points are not the point, And that the poetry is not the point. That the point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next week, everyone.